Welcome. Hope you all enjoyed a wonderful Christmas season. We're actually still in the season, and it's been a wonderful time. Direct your attention to the Word of God. We return to our series in Hebrews. We're in chapter 4. We have before us two short verses. Most of the time, these verses are read as a text and then taken out of context and preached a message that's certainly true, but is not contextual. I will pray, and you pray for me, that I'll get the context right today. And I think it'll be a message for our hearts, like very few that we've heard this year from anybody, here or anywhere else. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let the word speak to you. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask only that we will hear have ears to hear. For if, Lord, we hear your word, then we will be compelled by its power to live according to your word. Give us now, Father, your spirit to both illumine our eyes and open our ears and to transform our hearts that we may behold marvelous things out of thy law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The writer refers to the Word of God. He says the Word of God is living and active. While we know the Word of God is that which reveals and communicates God's mind, God's will, God's activities, His actions, His purposes, His emotions. And we know that God's Word is completely true. It is self-attesting. It is self-interpreting. It stands on its own. And it has within itself the very power to accomplish what God sends it forth to do. The book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who had quite a bit of experience with the Word of God in preaching it, hearing it, feeling it, watching it succeed, and apparently from time to time seemingly to fail, came to this conclusion as the Lord himself spoke to the prophet saying, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be. It goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. The word of God takes many forms. As you study the scriptures, I often emphasize to people when I teach the Bible that the Bible is not just a book. It is a library of books. 
And they must be understood really kind of each book on its own in a very real sense. But not only is the Bible a library of books, but each book is a composition of various words from the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to us in in commandment, in law, in statute, in mandate, precept and promise, blessing and curse, testimony and threat. And this is what we have before us today is an oracle. The oracle of God is an oath that God swore when he said, they shall not enter my rest. And the rest there was far more than the rest of Canaan or the rest of the promised land, but it was the rest of God. It was that rest that God gives within himself. Everything that God promises throughout the Bible ultimately resolves itself and becomes fulfilled in the Lord himself. In fact, this is stated at the very beginning of the covenant when God called Abraham, he said, I will be thy exceeding great reward. All the material things we think about are important. They're real. But the true, the true rest of God, the true reward of God, the true benefit is God himself. And that's what we've been looking at in the, in the Advent sermons. Emmanuel, God with us. God who came and made himself available, accessible, possessible in Christ Jesus, his son and our savior. So God, when his word goes forth, it goes forth to accomplish something. And ultimately what the word of God does is it delivers to us God, it conveys to us something about him, his saving power, his redeeming, his sustaining, his upholding, even his judging and his punishing. He comes to us in those ways. The, the analogies of the word of God are many in scripture. I just highlight two or three. Moses referred to the word of God as manna, that which proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is our sustenance. It is none other than the conveyance of the Son who is himself the bread of life. The scripture tells us in the prophet Jeremiah that the word of God is a, a hammer that breaks to pieces. And that application of the hammer can be the stony heart of unbelief can be broken. The bitterness and the strength of all of God's enemies can be shattered and pulverized by the blows of the hammer of God. It is one of those hammers that breaks down the anvil as it is so powerful. And then David found the word of God to be sweet, like honey from a honeycomb. Not only sustaining, not only enlivening and sweetening, but making it pleasurable to the live. And that's what the Word of God does. It accomplishes all of these things. And here in this particular passage, we have the use of the Word of God in, I think, contextually, a very specific way. It's not just all of the utterances of God. It is the particular 
oracle from God that is an oath. In other words, he's speaking of not just the general revelation of God's speaking in all of its manifold ways and divers manners to the prophets, but it is a focused way. It is that word of God which has to do with this particular warning, this particular threat, this particular oath. And he wants to remind them about God's word, that it is active, it accomplishes that. And it is live, it is a living word. That phrase is used several times in the New Testament. Peter uses it. And so does Paul, talking about the dynamic of the word of God being living. That is, God's word is that which goes forth out of his mouth. And the particular thing that's spoken of here is the sword. Coming from the mouth of the Lord, the Word of God is effectively, operationally, it is a particular tool, it's an instrument, and it's the sword. Now, I don't want to shock your sensibilities when I tell you that, for the most part, the sword in the Scripture is an instrument of death. The word of God going forth out of his mouth as a sword is an instrument of death. I looked it up in my concordance a couple of days ago and just browsed through there. And there's 200 and something, almost 300 references to the sword in the Old Testament and in the New. And almost all of them talk about the edge of the sword how people died at the edge of the sword. It was the edge of the sword, the finely whetted edge of that instrument that was the cause of the death of so many. It's a serious thing when God's word is seen as a sword. In fact, even in the book of Revelation, when the conquering king comes, Christ himself riding upon the white steed with the, with the word of God plastered upon his thigh when he unsheaths. It's a sword, but it goes forth out of his mouth. It's his word. In other words, the word of God is that which is quick and powerful, and it is an instrument of death. And this, this is very vividly explained here. It says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That's a beautiful little phrase, but what happens when you divide the, the material part of us, the soul, the nephesh, the whole person from the inner spirit. Death. Death is the disembodiment of the spirit. And the word of God pierces even. I don't think he's trying to give us an anthropology here or a psychology. I think he's given us just a pretty plain metaphor. The word of God kills, it divides the heart of the person between the material and the immaterial. In fact, it's that thing that, that kills us. And to make it even more vivid, he spreads it out a little more and says of the joints and of the marrow. It's not just the slaughtering with the edge of the sword, but it's the disembodiment. It's the butchering of the hardest tissues of the body, the bone and the tendons and the ligaments. This whole book is going to be dealing with the work of the high priest. And one of the works of the high priest was to actually slaughter and butcher the sacrificial animal. And it was done with a sharp knife. 
And so the picture here is very vivid of what's happening. It's the, it's the slaughtering of the sacrificial animal that's being, that's being envisioned. And so it is, it is the instrument of death in God's hand. You remember what God said in his oath. He said, they shall not enter into my rest. And the scripture tells us that the whole generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, that experienced the exodus and the salvation of God, died in the wilderness. And many of them, by the edge of the sword. This is a very serious warning and admonition here. And it says that this sword is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word here is the word for judgment. It means a discerner, a judge, a condemner, a punisher. And then of the heart. This sword acts upon the human heart and gets into the matters that are below the surface. It's no longer the facade. It's no longer the outward appearance. But now this sword that's going to do its work works its way into the human heart and there looks at opinions, desires, states of mind, passions, beliefs, motives, values, priorities, actions, attitudes, secrets, all encased in the human heart. It's not just a profession of faith, but it is looking to the very heart itself. Jesus said, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. David said, keep or guard your heart with all diligence. Moses said, be sure your sins will find you out. And the scriptures here point that out. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to him to whom we must give an account. That's the, that's the seriousness of the, of the message here, is that we all are under inspection. We're under a judging eye. We're under an infinitely holy and righteous, discerning, all-seeing eye that knows everything about us. There is nothing hidden to his eye. He looks deep upon the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks upon the heart. And this is where the issues of life, they spring from the heart. So that's where the inspection must take place. God sees the true you. Others may not. Not even folks as close as your own family members, maybe your own spouse, your own children, your own parents. God sees you. He looks at your heart and He sees everything there. Be sure your sin will find you out. And the Bible says there's a great awa- a reckoning it says, no creature is hidden from his sight, 
We must give account. Be one thing for the Lord to see it and know it and sort of keep it to himself. (laughs) Or for God to see it and know it and not do anything about it. Let us get away with it. Let it slide. And that's really the hope that most people have. The hope of salvation that most people have is God's just going to forget about their wickedness, their sins in their heart. God doesn't know, but if he knows, he don't care. And if he don't care, he won't do anything about it. Most people have a strong sense, almost a a depraved proclivity to move in some way. Whatever's in my heart, whatever sins I've committed, whatever I've done, whatever thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, heresies. And in this big case, we're talking about apostasy. We're talking about an evil heart of unbelief is the way the writer describes it in the book of Hebrews. A turning away, a falling away, a moving away from God. That God's just going to let that go. He's going to dismiss it. Not important. Or if it is important, God's a big God. He's not going to hold little things against you. God knows that you you're a sinner and you can't help it and he's not going to be cruel to animals and he's certainly not going to be cruel to you. God has given man in his own image. It would be a a depreciation of man if God did not hold man accountable to some righteous standard because God created man in his own image and God is holiness and righteousness and that righteousness and holiness must be upheld and it must be reflected back to God if man is to be a true image and He's not going to let you get away with it. Because you're in his image. And that image is now marred and polluted and pulverized by your sin and by your heart's attitude. See, I'm not talking about how good a person you are. I'm not talking about how much you tithe, how much you come to church. I'm not talking about how much of goodness you have to others. That's all important. I'm not berating any of that. But I think what's talking about in this scripture is the, is the heart condition, the sin, the hypocrisy, the unbelief, the bitterness. And it's interesting he uses this phrase. It says, no creature is hidden from in sight and all are naked and exposed. That's really the condition of the sacrificial animal. The sacrificial animal was, was slaughtered and skinned and bifurcated and disemboweled. <laughs> Is this a little heavy for 8 o'clock on Sunday morning? But that's what, that's what took place. It was a bloody, nasty ordeal. It was smelly. And above all, every step of the way, the animal was inspected. If you want to read about the inspection, go back to Leviticus. There's a whole chapter that talks about nothing of how the the priest inspects the animal to see if there's any any blemish in the animal. And if if there's a blemish, the animal is destroyed, burned in the fire. The animal must be without blemish. How do you measure up to that inspection, naked, exposed to an all-seeing eye.
back to the sword. It says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, piercing. It's no accident in the providence of God that upon Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ was pierced through with a sword. You say, Ron, I thought that was a spear, not a sword. Go look up the Word. It's a technical Roman military instrument. It wasn't just a spear with a tip that was made for flight. It was an instrument that had a long blade that was oblong and was whetted and sharpened on both sides. It was a two-edged sword. And it was designed, if I may be graphic one last time, to pierce through the abdomen, come up through the diaphragm and the thoracic cavity, pierce and cut through the heart and my arteries there, turned 90 degrees and then pulled out again. You don't survive that kind of piercing. Jesus had already died. It was finished. But His blood had oozed from the seven wounds in His body and now it flowed. And it did exactly what Zechariah chapter 31 said. The Lord said to Zechariah, tell the people, Behold, I will open in Jerusalem a fountain for the forgiveness of sins of Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And as that Roman soldier who knew exactly what he was doing pierced the body of Christ, the Bible says, out flowed the blood. A fountain was opened and blood poured forth and spilled down upon Golgotha's brow, bloodying the land And just like Abel's blood had cried out in the first murder, the blood of Christ splattering upon the sand of Golgotha's hill cries out. And it cries out saying, Jesus paid it all. That sword that should pierce us, that should bring about our eternal death, was thrust into His body so that it doesn't have to be thrust into ours. He stood there in our place taking the discerning and inspecting eye of the Father who looked at Him and beheld sin for He was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin. And the Father saw in Him the filth and the sin and the attitudes and the the. the depravity of us and spared it so that He won't do it to us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. That's why we in this church don't take the songs about the blood out of our hymnal. Is because we know that we have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without spot and without blemish. And when we get to heaven, we'll sing a song, and it'll have a title, Worthy is the Lamb.